We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast with Chris Webster and Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today our guest is Steve Waller and we're going to hear all about archaeoacoustics. That sounds amazing. Sorry about that. Here we go. Welcome. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm with the California Rock Art Foundation and I'm the founder and president. And today we're we're really blessed and honored to have an archaeological pioneer with us. His name is Steve Waller. He's one of the board members of the American Rock Art Research Association. That is the uh, national organization for the study of rock art. And we're going to have Steve Waller uh, talk to us today about a very, very interesting sub-discipline in the study of anthropology and archaeology having to do with sound and prehistory. Steve Waller. Hi, Alan. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's a blessing and an honor to have you, Steve. It's been a while since we've really spent much time together, hasn't it? Right, yeah. Well, Steve, I, I wonder if you could give us a thumbnail sketch of your own background and how you got involved with what's called archaeoacoustics and maybe give us a definition of what that subdiscipline is and its history. I know that's a lot of questions bombarding you con constantly, but, <laughs> but I guess first point is, Steve, what's archaeoacoustics? Another name for archaeoacoustics is acoustic archaeology. And basically, it has to do with the study of sound in relationship to archaeology and the past. And it's just a really long word that means let's listen to what our ancestors might have been aware of and interested in. What sorts of studies fall under this acoustic archaeology umbrella? Well, basically, it is multidisciplinary, and it covers any subject that would have to do with sound in the past. A lot of the studies that have been done relate to cathedrals, ancient auditoria, the, the Roman and Greek theaters, that kind of thing. My specialties, though, has been in terms of rock art, the cave paintings and the petroglyphs that are in canyons. So that, that's kind of my niche here. So how did this discipline ever get started and how did you get involved or interested in doing this kind of work? Well, I got involved before the discipline had even been born, really. My background is as a biochemist, a PhD in biochemistry. So I'm a scientist, and my day job has to do with medical diagnostics. So this archaeoacoustics is really an avocation of mine. It's a passion. And I got into it kind of by an unusual circumstance, my wife had taken art history and she came home one day and, and showed me these beautiful pictures of cave paintings. And up until that time, I had only really seen the cartoons, you know, in the, in the funny pages. And I only just knew about it vaguely. So I was very impressed by the 
cave paintings that our ancestors did. But even more so, I was struck by what she learned on her first day is that there is really no good explanation for why our ancestors were doing this, why they were crawling deep in caves and doing these paintings. So soon after that, we went to France to live for a year. I got assigned to do biochemistry in France for a year. And so we took as every opportunity we could to visit caves and the cave paintings in France. How old are these cave paintings, Steve? Oh, some of them are as old as 30,000 years old. There are some that have been dated in um, Malaysia to even older than that. So, And some of the more famous paintings like Glasgow are 15,000 years old. So they were done by Homo sapiens, the, the same species as we are now. So they had the same brain capacity uh, and structure as us, but their, their culture was very different in terms of their viewpoint of the world. They didn't know about sound and science. Everything was uh, like on a spiritual level and phenomenological. Have your studies been involved with any of those kinds of caves? The deep caves of France is actually where I started. Oh, my word. Yeah. So um, even though I'm living now in the United States, um, I was assigned to to work in France for a year. And that's where I was doing my initial uh, visits. But at the time, it was just as a tourist. But I was so intrigued about like why our ancestors would make these paintings that at the mouth of one of the caves, I was waiting to go in and my wife had gone out to the car to get her sweater because it's cold in the caves. And so I was standing outside of the cave and I asked myself, if I were a caveman, why would I go deep into these caves and risk my life and only paint certain chambers with certain species? <laughs> and, and, and it just perplexed me, like, why would I go in there? And what is taking her so long? So I yelled, <laughs> hey, Pat! And the cave spoke back. Wow. And I think it was because I was thinking like a caveman my subconscious did not hear the reply as simply sound reflection. I heard it as a spirit that spoke back. And I immediately remembered learning in English literature class that our ancestors thought that echoes were due to spirits that live in the rocks. There's a lot of mythology about um, spirits being the explanation for why a voice comes out of solid rock. So I just instantly, when that happened, it's like, oh my gosh, that's got to have something to do with it. You know, it would explain why they would go deep in the caves if they were searching for these spirits. And then later on, I was doing all kinds of acoustic study. Well, that was in 1987. So ever since then, I've been doing acoustic studies of of rock art. And when you say acoustic studies, How do you do that? What is it that you use or how do you do an acoustic study? I think that's uh, uh, what some of our listeners might be interested in. What do you what what kind of machinery or what kind of what kind of mechanism do we need to to do an acoustic study? Well, that is still under development. What I 
do myself is I do recordings as documentation of the sound that can be analyzed later in audio programs that can analyze the frequency and intensity of the sound. And I use a standard technique of acousticians called impulse response. And that is basically making a percussion sound, just a a loud kind of clapping sound that is over with very quickly and covers all the frequencies in the hearing range. And then what happens after that, and you are recording any reflections that come back as a result of um, sound reflecting surfaces. So then the impulse response, they call it, is basically the response from you making the impulse. That can be fed into the computer and not only analyzed, but then it can be used to like reconstruct any sounds that would have been made in that environment. So you can pipe in music or whatever and hear what it would have sounded like. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's really cool. So it's important, though, to be able to have a reproducible sound source. Acousticians use a variety of sound sources to make that impulse, that percussion kind of sound. And one of them is a starter's pistol, which I felt was not representative of what our ancestors could have made. I don't you know, think I, that would, have a, I don't think that would go over very well with some of our colleagues. I know, or the officials in France who you're trying to get permission to go into the case. So I wasn't about to do that. And I wasn't about to take a starter's pistol on a plane. But (laughs) another technique used is to pop balloons. Hmm. Uh, It just makes a a popping sound that goes in all directions. That's um, one of the techniques. I don't like that because it leaves like latex all over the place. And it also is hard to blow up balloons, even with a mechanical thing. And to me, they're not very reproducible. So I was thinking, well, how how can I make some reproducible sound that would be better than simply clapping? And so I use a reproducible spring-loaded percussion device, otherwise known as a rat trap with the jingling gate holder <laughs> removed. <laughs> oh, my Thank you. word. High technology. High technology. It's, it's very portable. It's very inexpensive. You can you can get thousands and thousands of sounds from the same device. Now, I mean, a professional acoustician would use something like a, a octagonal speaker array, and but then you have to carry these heavy batteries with you in these canyons, and it's also very expensive. You know, it's a compromise. You you stay with the rat trap, huh? (laughs) Yes. And I also wanted to have something that everyone can use that would be um, easily available. You can just go to a hardware store and get, you know, rat traps and everybody can use it. And it would be like a standard. The archaeoacoustics in general is so new that there's no real accepted um, methodology at this There's point. no standard. Right. So tell us in terms of your research, what you have learned, what you have discovered. Okay. There are really two branches to my studies. One is the, uh, you could call it like the science of um, acoustics 
which, you know, is the recording and like I was just describing, the analyzing and um, documentation of the actual physical sounds, which, you know, we're a scientific society. So we just think, we just trivialize echoes, you know, we just ignore them, but but it's a very complicated phenomenon, actually. So it's just a matter of understanding that what we think of today as just sound bouncing back was considered to be supernatural in the past. And because they didn't have an explanation, you know, not knowing about sound waves and propagation and all that. So they actually had a supernatural explanation for sounds, as I was kind of mentioning about the echo mythology. So that's the other branch of my acoustics research is looking into the ethnography of what sound meant to our ancestors. So in other words, what you're talking about is looking at native people, indigenous people, anthropology, prehistory, and trying to see what people have described as the religious metaphors, the ceremonies, the cosmology of the people. Am I correct? Exactly. The worldview and and why um, echoes might have been considered important. Now, I, I don't claim to have discovered that there are echoes in caves, you know, or canyons. I mean, it's kind of like everybody knows that. But I think that's why we had a blind spot all this time about not recognizing it because we just, of course, everybody knows what echo is, that kind of thing, you know, but to our ancestors, they were just totally inexplicable and mysterious. And they were the spirits speaking to you. They were a communication from the other world. And that's why I have really sought out all these echo myths. Like there's dozens and dozens of them that I've found around the world. It's not just the Greek um, myth of the echo, but in the American Southwest, the echo was considered to be a witch that lived in the belly of sheep and also in snakeskins and in the lizard. In Hawaiian mythology, echo as the bodiless voice was the beginning of all. And so all around the world, there's these myths about spirits being trapped in the rocks and mocking passersby and, and, and even being worshipped as God. So that's what I'm using to trying to let people know that these echo phenomenon aren't just trivial. They were so important to our ancestors that they spent all this time and uh, about making this rock art, which, which I feel like is the reason, is one of the reasons why rock art was made around the world, because our human ancestors would have had a similar response around the world to rock art as documented in these global echo myths. Well, I think in the next section, what I'd like you to do is talk about some of the case studies and the discoveries or the patterns that you've been able to discover and recognize that would support the correlation between acoustic archaeology and the metaphors of the theology and the explication of various rock art sites. Would that be a good segue, Steve? Sounds good. Okay. Chris? (laughs) All right. Well, with that, we will take it to break and we will see you guys on the other side back in a second. (laughs) 
Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast with our guest Steve Waller today. And right before the break, Alan, you asked him a question. Why don't you go ahead and reiterate that for our listeners after this ad break and we'll, uh, we'll get into it. I'm here with uh, Steve Waller, one of the pioneers and one of the world-class experts what we call acoustic archaeology or archaeoacoustics. And I believe I asked Steve specifically to give me some sort of understanding of some of the discoveries or the patterns that he has been able to tease out with respect to looking at archaeological sites and rock art in relationship to his understanding and their understanding of the concept and effects of sound. Take it away, Steve. Right. So... Right after I had my kind of realization that echoes could be important to the study of rock art and might have been a motivational factor for cave paintings, what I tried to do was to see if I could approach it in a scientific manner and have a hypothesis that could be tested in a scientific manner. So the hypothesis was that there would be a correlation between sound and rock art. If indeed my theory was correct, that sound would have been a motivator of rock art. So ever since then, I've been doing acoustic testing, not only at rock art sites, but also the sites that were not selected for rock art. So the first part of it was to see if there was a general kind of connection between rock art and sound. And maybe that one cave that I was at might have been a very unique situation. What I found in the, I've been to hundreds of sites now, is that it's very much a, a general kind of phenomenon that rock art is associated with places that have remarkable echoes. Now, have you, what would you, what would you say the percentage of the sites that you've been to uh, appear to have echophonic or acoustic properties? Greater than 98%, I would say. Now, um, some of the exceptions would be like some of the later historical, the ones where they're documenting actual historical accounts, like with horses and all the, yeah, those the historic are, sites, you know, right. So, but the, and there were a couple of sites that I couldn't really get at the right angle because they had poison ivy all around them. Yeah. So, um, of the, but of the ones that I've studied, I, I'd certainly say that it's it's almost like all of them. 
So you would say it's an overwhelmingly positive correlation, almost a one-to-one, that if you go to a rock art site prehistorically and you do test for the acoustic or echophonic properties, you find that there is demonstrably that effect that exists at that place. Yes. And the, the other thing is that what I've been doing is trying to do a systematic study of not only being able to say, yes, rock art sites do echo in general, but that they have better or louder or more echoes than places that are not decorated, like in between the sites that um, are decorated. Have you found that that the areas that are undecorated may not have those same properties? I've found that they don't have as good of an acoustic properties. That's even okay, though, perfect. In, yeah, even though in many cases the rock is perfectly suitable for um, the rock art, you know, they call it like canvas, <laughs> that yeah. it would be like a very yeah. suitable canvas. But uh, what I've found is that in, in the places that rock art isn't, but that you'd usually, um, you know, expect why, you know, or you'd ask yourself, why not here? Those are the places that don't have as good acoustics. And it might be because the, the surfaces reflect the sound away from you or, you know, aren't as reflective in the first place. But that's why I think it's important to do a systematic study. And that's why I use a reproducible sound generating device so that um, you can do comparative studies. One of the things that I've read and from our experience together, which we'll get to towards the end of our interview, there's sometimes what they might call an amphitheater kind of effect. Maybe you can comment on that. Oh, yes. In fact, some rock art sites even have that as part of their name to it. And it's certainly a phenomenon that can happen is like it's a really good place to hear echoes or it's a like a surface that you can hear an echo come from. And I've I've come across several different examples where there would be two rock art sites like across the canyon from each other and they almost like talk to each other. You can like hear the echo coming from one site and then you go to that site and then you can hear the echo coming from the other site. And some of these places that have rock art act almost like parabolic reflectors to collect the sound and also to broadcast the sound, you know, like a, a, a dish reflector. So it's like that amphitheater kind of effect I was talking about, kind of a yeah, yeah. kind of a dish or a concavity where the sound, you can stand very far away, but hear, hear your sound as it's almost right next to you. Yes. 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 And there's a place in Chaco Canyon that the Native Americans called curved rock that speaks. And that's a place that has that kind of amphitheater effect where it's a curvature and it focuses the sound. And you can stand back like hundreds of feet and you can yell. And it's really cool because the echo is actually louder than the original sound just because it's so focused. Yeah. Fabulous. But it's funny because when I first started doing this type of research, um, the initial response of people were, oh, you know, you wouldn't expect most rock art sites to echo. And then as I went to more and more and more of these sites and they all seem to echo, then I started hearing, well, of 
course they're going to echo because they're made out of rock. But, <laughs> but that's why I like want to do the systematic studies to show that, well, here's a place that's got rock, you know, but it doesn't have good echoes. And so I almost like try to picture it as if you were walking through a canyon at night and you had like a little candle or a flashlight and picture the canyon walls being covered with mirrors. Yes. So at certain points when you walk along, you'd be able to see yourself. You'd be able to see the the light source that you're carrying. But other places you would not be able to see that reflection because it wouldn't be at the right angle. Well, let me ask you an interesting question here for our uh, listeners. What's the most extraordinary experience you've ever had at a rock art site that incorporated its uh, acoustic properties? What's the most ethereal or surprising elements that you've discovered? Um, Well, aside from that first time of the cave speaking back. (laughs) That um, sounds good. Yeah. So there, there was this one instance where I was actually playing a flute in a little side canyon that had really nice rock art. And it, it was like during the lunch break and everybody else was off eating lunch. And so I was playing the flute in the little canyon and it was the acoustics, which is beautiful. And so when the time came to move on and lunchtime was over, I kept playing the flute as I was walking out of the side canyon. And it's very hard to explain, but when I went out of the side canyon and I wasn't hearing the echoey response anymore, it was like, what happened? Where did the spirits (laughs) go? You know, it gave me like this really lonely kind of feeling because when I was playing in the canyon where the rock art was, it was almost like the spirits were playing along with me. And then I walked out and it was a lonely. So it must be this ethereal or religious or metaphysical supernatural sense of when you're in a canyon, when you're there with rock art sites and the sounds are uh, acoustically magnified, correct? Yeah. And I didn't even realize it so much at the time. You maybe intellectually, you know, it's like, oh, this is a good place, you know, to, to play the flute. And they probably liked hearing that. But it was the unexpected, like emotional impact of losing those echoes when I went out of the canyon that was kind of remarkable. And it reminded me, I forget which happened first, but there was a, a person from the UK who came over and he had actually found some rock art by echolocation and he let me know and wow and we we published a, an article about that but, so he discovered um, yeah. the rock art based on the echolocation yes yeah and, oh, that, and it that's turns amazing out that, i know and it turns out that that particular little spot it had two very tiny little petroglyphs um <laughs> it, it, they had not been discovered before they were new, but, and he found them just by following the, the, following um, the echoes. Yeah. yeah the echoes. Um, so, so what I think about his the name is Steve Allen, but can, let me just um, describe sure. what happened. No, please, he, please. he actually had the software that I, I couldn't remember at first, but it was called like acoustic mirror where you can plug in your recorded sound from the impulse response and then it will play back 
sounds that what you, what you would have heard if you had been there. So he actually had it set up in my living room. I gave him a recording of the Lascaux cave, uh, got wow. to go into, into the original and make recordings of it. And oh my gosh, it sounds like a cathedral in there. And the, the reproduction is acoustically dead. It's, it's very misleading. But anyway, so he set up <laughs> so that my living room sounded like the original cave of Lascaux. And it was just amazing. All these like sound, like as we were talking, everything, it was like being there. And then he turned it off and it's like, it was painful. It's like, <laughs> wait, what happened? The room was like, dead now you know it was like you lost that's what it was like world yes i know that's what it was like walking out of that side canyon so it really does have an emotional response let me ask you a a sort of a a, a sort of a probing question so we know that many of these rock art sites or even most of the rock art sites have echophonic or acoustic properties is there a relationship between the subject matter the the imagery the depictions on the rock art in association with those sounds. Do you see? Okay. Tell me, please. Yes. Thank you so much for bringing that up because my theory about sound not only relates to the location of the rock art, but also the subject matter. So, you know, what I had learned in the art history course was that only certain species were depicted in the cave paintings and being a biologist by background, I was looking at the tabulations that had been done of the species and it, and you know, it was like 28% horses and 34% bison or whatever, you know, and so, so many percent deer. Well, I recognize that if you add all those up there, like it was greater than 90% hoofed animals, ah, ungulates. ungulates. And so, yeah. And so it's like, well, why were they just depicting ungulates. Why, you know, what was it about the hooves that were important? And they've been described as like large herbivores and stuff, you know, and I don't, I don't think it's related to what they eat. And also people have thought it had something to do with hunting magic because they were animals that they were hunting, but they, the species do not correspond very well with the species that were hunted in the past. So recognizing though that 90% were hooved animals made me think it had something to do with the sound of the hooves. So the cacophonous sound of the hooves against the ground, this reverberation, this thunderous rumbling. The thunderous reverberation, yes. <laughs> I and, love and it. It I sounds it. like a, if you clap in these caves, <laughs> uh-huh. it, the, the resulting echoes, there's so many that they all blur together into a thunderous reverberation. It sounds like a stampede of hooved animals. Oh, my word. And in fact... That is how our European ancestors viewed thunderstorms. They had mythology of the thunder gods galloping with their hoofed animals across the clouds. That's what they pictured was happening during a thunderstorm. So I think that our ancestors who were making the cave paintings were hearing these thunderous sounds and and attributing them to the same hoved animals that caused the thunder in the sky. Phenomenal. That's why they were painting hoved animals in echoing cave chambers. Now, one other thing that, that might be important that I 
was thinking of when you were mentioning this. When I spent uh, four years working on a book with uh, some Native Americans in the Western Mojave Desert, one of the things that struck me most insightfully is Native people in the main seem to be a audiophonic culture. In other words, they think about things in sounds. It's not so much pictures as sounds. Do you agree with that or is there something that I'm onto there? I think you're right about that. And there have been studies, I can't remember offhand where exactly, like maybe it was Malaysia or the Philippines or whatever, that these people who are indigenous to these parts of the world that have a lot of trees and dense forests, you can hear a lot further than you can see. And so it's very important to them in terms of communication and being aware of their environment to, to have that um, sensitivity for sound. And when Fantastic. you think about it, even the, um, the, the stereotypical image of a Native American with the ear to the ground, I mean, mm. they, they were so much more sensitive to sound than yes. Europeans. And today, I think it, it's almost like um, how in the city, you're like, um, you have white noise that, because of the light, you can't see yes. the stars. Yeah. Well, we are so inundated with sound today in our modern environment, that it has affected people's hearing. And we're on sound overload, even, aren't we? Right. And even psychologically, we tend to try to ignore and suppress sound. Well, we have to we have to go to a break now. But when we uh, come back, I want to talk about our collaboration and with sound and talk about the rock art project that you and I did. Thank you. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business like that. Let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live that we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set that counted up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode three. This is Chris Webster with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we've got Steve Waller on continuing to talk about archaeoacoustics. And Steve, one of the things I was wondering from the last two segments, really, in the first segment, you mentioned tracking down stories about how native people from around the world have reacted to and and thought about, you know, maybe what the source of these echoes are in their own cosmology, in their own worldview. But I'm wondering about other evidence. Is there other evidence of actual echoes or the production of these echoes in the rock art or in some other form or, you know, through ethnographic evidence after like pre-contact here in the United States, maybe, or sorry, post-contact here in the United States, maybe some, some interviews or something like that where, where we have other evidence of people talking about what they think the source of this might be or what, how they treat it from a, um, from a native perspective. Chris, you gave a, you gave a great uh, ambiance or a liaison to, uh, <laughs> to, to fabulously discuss the case study of the Yahuera uh, house. Well, there you go. <laughs> why don't Why don't you uh, open it up, Steve, and talk about 
how the heck uh, you and I got together in your initial studies on Yahuera Canina or Back Canyon. How's that? Okay. Yeah, sounds good. So, yeah, uh, I've been to so many of these places around the world, and I just welcome any opportunity to go to sites to test it. And in addition to looking at the ethnography, so... Um, one of the places was up in Canada in the Canadian Shield, and it was actually a place where they consider the rock art site to be the home of a spirit called Mimi Guashio that lives in the rock. And that same little spirit is felt to be the spirit that causes echoes. So that was a direct relationship between rock art and an echo spirit. That's a one-on-one, A plus on that one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was like amazing. So, um, and that does have really good echoes at that site. This is another example then, this um, Yawera, where there's a rock art site that is considered to be the home of a spirit. And Correct. one of the interesting things about sound reflection is that it gives an illusion of depth. Just like when you look in a mirror, you look in the mirror it gives the illusion that there's a a world on the other side, like Alice through the looking glass. One of the things we talked about in our article was it sounds like almost like the, the, the sound or the echo is coming from within the rocks. Yes. And one of the things associated with that site is that the shaman heard the sound of deer in the rocks. And that is very similar to what happens in the deep caves of France, where if you clap, you hear hoof beats. But in that case, it's more like a thunderous kind of blur. But in the open canyons, when you clap and you hear that reflection of the percussion sound, it sounds like hoof beats. And at this particular site in Back Canyon, it's a double echo. Echo. It's so a it double echo. Like- so one of the things we found when I heard about Steve Waller's work at Back Canyon, I wanted to uh, wed or twin our research and work the ethnography against the acoustics, identify the sound words that occur in the robust example of the oral traditions. So here we have a site that's on a limestone pillar on on a spring and painted upon that limestone pillar next to a spring and a, and, a, and a drainage is sort of an amphitheater-like effect. And this is the home of the animal master, according to the Kawaiisu narrative. And this is where the animal master lives. It's an entrance to the underworld. And as the story goes, the animal master, Hiahuera, is guarded by two snakes, a rattlesnake and a gopher snake, and also two bears, the grizzly bear and the brown bear. And they are the uh, portal protectors. Yeah, you mentioned portal, and that's an interesting and important concept because this illusion of depth that sound gives, it's almost like the wall opens up and it gives this impression that there's a chamber beyond or a depth that you can actually go into. That same concept relates to the the shaman trying to go into the rock or that there's a spirit world behind the rock. 
And so the the story of Yawera is um, just full of all kinds of descriptions of sound, like growling and noises and songs and it's so, so all those things as we as one enters the portal, when one's interested in either meeting with Yahweh, he or she will help us to uh, heal us. It's when we're having problems, either psychological, emotional problems, or we we're having a, a string of bad luck with hunting, or we're we're sick. You go and meet Yahweh, and Yahweh is. A bird. It wears a quail-plumed blanket or a skirt, and even the name Yahweh has to do with sound. It has to do with the cawing or the screeching of the birds. And when we go in there at the portal, at the entrance of the portal, are depictions are the are the animal horns that exist, both the antlers and the horns, right there as we go in. And when you go in, you meet uh, Yahuera in an underground tunnel. The medicine that you get are songs. Songs are arrayed all throughout the, the room, and you pick a song, and that song becomes your friend and your healing medicine. Right. And Yawera, you mentioned that he's called the animal master because that's where the deer go when they die. And so it kind of is interesting that they can hear the sound of hoofbeats, the sound of deer in the rocks there. You can also call out and Yawera will speak back to you. It's it's as if they they chose that spot to paint that image that relates to the sound and the story. And on the painting itself is a depiction of Yahweh as a plumed animal human figure with claws. And there at both sides of that individual are two snakes. Also, the uh, quail plumes and the quail itself, the quail live there near the Yahweh, and the quail are perceived as part of the story because the quail is seen as a audiophonic bird. In fact, the name for the quail in Kawaiisu means the sound of the quail's, uh, you know, voice. So it's just amazing that this story is so rich and, and full of so many details about that and that it does relate to the whole um, the sound phenomenon that occurs there. So it just takes it from being a you know, few um, images and paint to come alive in a, a whole different way of understanding the the mythology and the worldview of the people and the culture that um, were associated with the rock art. As we dig deeper, the quail becomes more and more important. The uh, word for quail in Kawaisu is tara, tara. And tara is the sound of the quail's voice. It makes a sound like the quail, tara, tara. Now, as well, when an individual wanted to enter, let's say a shaman or even a medicine person wanted to enter that world and touch the supernatural, the divine, the celestial world, they would use certain uh, ethnobotanical, certainly psychotropic plants. And one of those was jimson weed or datura. And the particular 
vessel that they would brew the detura was a small uh, necked jar covered with quail plumes, and it was called a tara gabadi, a quail uh, edifice. And the quail themselves have to do with both uh, regeneration, reproductive symbolism, fertility. Quail have a remarkable way of each spring and producing a tremendous number of birds. And as well, the quail, if it's being predated, if it's someone is coming after the quail, the mother quail will appear to be sick or dying, and the baby quail become catatonic. They, they sit on the ground. You can pick them up, and you think they're dead. And when you put them in your hands, they become alive again. It's, so there's, there's, there's this birth and death, resurrection, revitalization metaphor sort of twinned and entwined with this mythology, this sacred narrative. It's, it's just amazing that that whole mythology about the site. And then what I wanted to do was just go there and make recordings and actually demonstrate, you know, have objective evidence that there's echoes there. Uh, and what did, you these, dis- what did you discover? Oh, yeah, that's that um, the double echo that's there that sounds very much like hoofbeats. And and so most of these places with rock art have echoes that are so strong, you know, nobody would really deny it. But I, I think it's important to have the objective evidence. And one of the things that I really feel passionate about is the conservation aspect of rock art and the natural soundscape of these rock art sites, because at some point there might be um, a problem of like destruction of it. And there's many examples where the acoustics of rock art sites have been just ruined when they build walls or they widen out the tunnels of caves and all. So I think it's very important to preserve the natural acoustics of these sites. We're lucky that the Back Canyon is still very much um, in its natural form. Have you tested any sort of musical instruments such as uh, flutes or some of those uh, shells that you can use as horns? Have you uh, gone that direction or has that been done within the acoustic field? Um, it's been done. I I think that... Um, like I was describing how I was playing the flute and all that. Correct. It was, it's, it's more like not part of the scientific kind of study that I do because that is all having to do with impulse response, which is the, the percussion sound. And the, the reason it's important to do that is because you want a sound that's over with very quickly so that you can distinguish the echo from the original sound because just like how if you're having your picture taken and the flash goes off your eyes take a while to adjust and you see all these spots in front of your eyes the same thing happens with the ear when you hear a loud sound you can't really hear another sound right afterward for like a tenth of a second or so your ear has to recover so which sites that you've been to have had the most dramatic intense echophonic relationships 
Well, that that one in Chaco Canyon about the curved rock that speaks, you can you can really imagine them going there and just being astounded about the how strong the echo is and how far away you can hear it. In that case, they call it a polysyllabic echo, which just means that you can hear multiple syllables. And in that case, you can yell out one, two, three, four, and it'll come back one, two, three, four. <laughs> and, you know, it's just amazing that, that you can do that. Other places, you know, it's it's like you have to be there and you you clap and then you can hear it come right back. That's called a slap echo. But that, yeah, that's just amazing. And some of these places with the really long reverberation time, like like um, Nyo has in France, has a place called the Salon Noir, which means the dark room uh, or the black room. And then um, when you're in there, the the reverberation just seems to go on and on and on for like seven seconds. Oh it's my just word! Amazing how how the the sound persists. So it's basically like you can make a sound and then close your mouth, and you can still hear the sound seven heartbeats later. <laughs> it's just wow. amazing. Wow! Yeah. So so that that really gives one a true sense of re-experiencing the same phenomenon auditorially that humans had thousands and tens of thousands of years ago. Yes. And you can just picture our ancestors being totally perplexed at this, you know, mysterious supernatural phenomenon that they couldn't explain. And I don't think it's just a matter of a a Flintstone kind of sound system. You know, it's like, oh, this is a good place to play music. Let's do it here. I think it's because they were drawn to it spiritually because they didn't understand it. And that that's why they were making rock art in these weird locations such as deep in caves and high on canyon walls that they have to climb way up well i found that these paintings on high on the cliffs that's where the echo seems to come from you yell and the paintings speak back to you so it explains the location it's the precise location the, even the even the sort of the, the precise sublocation, the the in the the detailed specific locations of these images are where the source of echoes come from. Yes, and also there another kind of aspect of it is it can rock art can be associated with a place with a place that's really good to hear echoes coming from elsewhere or picking up sound, like tiny little sounds that you normally can't hear, but because of the acoustics of that place, it's almost like you you feel like you have superpower because your ears are super strong and you can hear a dog barking like a mile away. That's amazing. We only have about uh, 30 seconds to a minute. Why don't you uh, try to come full circle, Steve, and and, uh, share with us why you think echophonic studies are important and rock art is important because I think our audience would have some great interest in that. Yes, I think that recognizing that sound was important to our ancestors, especially echoes and thunder, make us realize that we should pay attention to it and study these rock art sites and experiencing them the way that our ancestors did in terms of 
appreciating the acoustics and trying to imagine how they experience these sound effects and realize that we should be protecting these rock art sites and preserving their natural sound so that we can study them scientifically as well as appreciate them in a human type way. Steve Waller, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on the Rock Art Podcast. Thank, thank you so much for your interest. Thank you. God bless you, Steve. Thank you so much. Yeah. So again, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Alan, for the great questions. And if anybody has any questions that maybe we can send on to Steve and we want to try to get answered or, or questions of Alan or myself, send them on. Find the show notes for this podcast, arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art forward slash three. And then you can find the show notes for this episode and be sure to check out all the other great episodes over at the um, archaeology podcast network. Also, you probably heard an ad for this. If it's still running, we are now on the Lyceum app, um, L Y C E U M. It's an educational podcast application that just curates only educational podcasts. So if you want to find our shows and other great shows that are educational, head over to the free Lyceum app and check us out over there. So Thanks again, guys, and we will be back next week with another great episode. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.